This episode is about the Ethereum white paper by Vitalik Buterin. I will be reading the white paper and providing context and a little bit of analysis where applicable. Enjoy. When Satoshi Nakamoto first set the Bitcoin blockchain into motion in January 2009, he was simultaneously introducing two radical and untested concepts. The first is the Bitcoin, a decentralized peer-to-peer online currency that maintains a value without any backing, intrinsic value, or central issuer. So far, the Bitcoin is a currency unit has taken up the bulk of the public attention, both in terms of the political aspects of a currency without a central bank and its extreme upward and downward volatility in price. However, there is also another equally important part to Satoshi's grand experiment, the concept of a proof-of-work-based blockchain to allow for a public agreement on the order of transactions. Bitcoin as an application can be described as a first-to-file system. If one entity has 50 Bitcoin and simultaneously sends the same 50 Bitcoin to A and to B, only the transaction that gets confirmed first will process. There is no intrinsic way of determining from the two transactions which came earlier. And for decades, this stymed the development of a decentralized digital currency. Satoshi's blockchain was the first credible decentralized solution. And now, attention is rapidly starting to shift towards the second part of Bitcoin's technology and how the blockchain concept can be used for more than just money. Commonly cited applications using on-blockchain digital assets to represent custom currencies and financial instruments, colored coins, the ownership of an underlying physical device, smart property, non-fungible assets such as domain names, like Namecoin, as well as more advanced applications such as decentralized exchange, financial derivatives, peer-to-peer gambling, and on-blockchain identity and reputation systems. Another important area of inquiry is smart contracts. Systems which automatically move digital assets according to arbitrarily pre-specified rules. For example, one might have a treasury contract of the form A can withdraw up to X currency per day, B can withdraw up to Y currency today, A and B together can withdraw anything, and A can shut off B's ability to withdraw. The logical extension of this decentralized autonomous organizations long-term smart contracts that contain the assets and encode the bylaws of an entire organization. What Ethereum intends to provide is a blockchain with a built-in, fully-fledged, Turing-complete programming language that can be used to create contracts, that can be used to encode arbitrary state transition functions, allowing users to create any of the systems described above, as well as many others that we have not yet imagined, simply by writing up the logic in a few lines of code. In this paper, we'll go over the following sections. 1. History Bitcoin as a state transition system, mining, Merkle trees, alternative blockchain applications, scripting. Secondly, we'll look at Ethereum. Ethereum accounts, messages and transactions, Ethereum state transition function, code execution, blockchain and mining. 
Thirdly, we'll look at applications, which has the following subsections. Token systems, financial derivatives, identity and reputation systems, decentralized file storage, decentralized autonomous organizations, and several other further applications. The following section will be miscellaneous and concerns. Modified ghost implementation, fees, computation and Turing completeness, currency and issuance, mining centralization, scalability. Finally, we will look at putting all of these pieces together through decentralized application section, following a conclusion and references and further reading. History. The concept of decentralized digital currency, as well as alternative applications like property registries, have been around for decades. The anonymous eCash protocols of the 1980s and 90s mostly reliant on a cryptographic primitive known as charm and blinding, provided a currency with a high degree of privacy, but the protocols largely failed to gain traction because of their reliance on a central intermediary. In 1998, Weidai's B-Money became the first proposal to introduce the idea of creating money through solving computational puzzles, as well as decentralized consensus. But the proposal was scant on details as to how decentralized consensus could actually be implemented. In 2005, Hal Finney introduced a concept of reusable proofs of work, a system which uses ideas from B-Money together with Adam Back's computationally difficult hash cash puzzles to create a concept for a cryptocurrency, but once again, fell short of the ideal by relying on trusted computing as a backend. Because currency is a first-to-file application where the order of transactions is often of critical importance, decentralized currencies require a solution to decentralized consensus. The main roadblock that all pre-Bitcoin currency protocols faced is that while there had been plenty of research on creating secure Byzantine fault-tolerant multi-party consensus systems for many years, all of the protocols described were solving only half the problem. The protocols assumed that if all participants in the system were known and produced security margins of the form, if N parties participate, then the system can tolerate up to N over four malicious actors. The problem is, however, that in an anonymous setting, such security margins are vulnerable to Sybil attacks, where an attacker creates thousands of simulated nodes on a server or botnet and uses these nodes to unilaterally secure a majority share. The innovation provided by Satoshi is the idea of combining a very simple decentralized consensus protocol based on nodes combining transactions into a block every 10 minutes, creating an ever-growing blockchain with proof-of-work as a mechanism through which nodes gain the right to participate in the system. While nodes with a large amount of computational power do have proportionally greater influence, coming up with more computational power than the entire network combined is much harder than simulating a million nodes. Despite the Bitcoin blockchain's models, crudeness, and simplicity, it has proven good enough 
and would over the next five years become the bedrock of over 200 currencies and protocols around the world. Bitcoin is a state transition system. From a technical standpoint, the Bitcoin ledger can be thought of as a state transition system, where there is a state consisting of the ownership status of all existing Bitcoins and a state transition function that takes a state and a transaction and outputs a new state, which is the result. In a standard banking system, for example, the state is the balance sheet. A transaction is, re is a request to move X dollars from A to B, and the state transition function reduces the value of A's account by X dollars and increases the value in B account by X dollars. If A's account has less than X dollars in the first place, the state transition function returns an error. Hence, one can formally define apply s comma tx, which goes to s prime or error. In the banking system defined above, we have the applied function. The state in Bitcoin is the collection of all coins, technically unspent transaction outputs. We call these UTXOs that have been minted and not yet spent. With each UTXO having a denomination and an owner defined by a 20-byte address, which is essentially a cryptographic public key, a transaction contains one or more inputs, with each input containing a reference to an existing UTO and a cryptographic signature produced by the private key associated with the owner's address, and one or more outputs with each output containing a new UTXO to be added to the state. The state transition function can be defined roughly as follows. One, for each input in TX, if the reference UTXO is not in S, return an error. If the provided signature does not match the owner of the UTXO, return an error. Two, if the sum of the denominations of all input UTXOs is less than the sum of the denominations of all output UTXO, return an error. Three, Return S with all input UTXO removed and output UTXO added. The first half of the first step prevents transaction senders from spending coins that do not exist. The second half of the first step prevents transaction senders from spending other people's coins. And the second step enforces conservation of value. In order to use for this payment, the protocol is as follow. Suppose Alice wants to send 11.7 Bitcoin to Bob. First, Alex will look for a set of available UTXO that she owns that totals up to at least 11.7 Bitcoins. Realistically, Alex won't be able to get exactly 11.7 BTC, Say the smallest she can get is 6 plus 4 plus 2, which is 12. She then creates a transactions with those three inputs and two outputs. The first output will be 11.7, 11 
Bitcoin with Bob's address as the owner. The second output will be the remaining 0.3 Bitcoin. We call this the change with the owner being Alice herself. Mining. If we had access to a trustworthy centralized service, this system would be trivial to implement. It could simply be coded as exactly as described. However, with Bitcoin, we're trying to build a decentralized currency system. So we will need to combine the state transition system with a consensus system in order to ensure that everyone agrees on the order of transactions. Bitcoin's decentralized consensus process requires nodes in the network to continuously attempt to produce packages of transactions called blocks. The network is intended to produce roughly one block every 10 minutes, with each block containing a timestamp, a nonce, a reference to the hash of the previous block, and a list of all the transactions that had taken place since the previous block. Over time, this creates a persistent, ever-growing blockchain that constantly updates to represent the latest state of the Bitcoin ledger. The algorithm for checking if a block is valid expressed in this paradigm is as follows. 1. Check if the previous block referenced by the block exists and is valid. 2. Check that the timestamp of the block is greater than that of the previous block, but less than two hours into the future. 3. Check that the proof of work on the block is valid. 4. Let S of 0 be the state at the end of the previous block. Suppose TX is the block's transaction list with n transactions for all i in 0 through n minus 1, set S of i plus 1 equal to apply S of i, comma, transaction TX of i. If any application returns an error, exit and return false. Essentially, each transaction in the block must provide a state transaction that is valid. Note that the state is not encoded in the block in any way. It is purely an abstraction to be remembered by the validating node and can only be securely computed for any block by starting from the genesis state and sequentially applying every transaction in every block. Additionally, note that the order in which the miner includes a transactions into the block matters. If there are two transactions A and B in block such that B suspends a UTXO created by A, then the block will be valid if A comes before B but not otherwise. The interesting part of the block validation algorithm is the concept of proof of work. The condition is that the SHA-256 hash of every block treated as a 256-bit number must be less than a dynamically adjusted target, which is, as of the time of this writing, approximately 2 to the 190th power. The purpose of this is to make block creation computationally hard, thereby preventing civil attackers from remaking the entire blockchain in their favor. Because SHA-256's 
designed to be a completely unpredictable pseudo-random function, the only way to create a valid block is simply trial and error. Repeatedly incrementing the nonce and seeing if the new hatch matches. At the current target of 2,192, this means an average of 264 tries. In general, the target is recalibrated by the network every 216 blocks, so that on average, a new block is produced by some node in the network every 10 minutes. In order to compensate miners for this computational work, the miner of every block is entitled to include a transaction, giving themselves 25 BTC out of nowhere. Additionally, if this transaction has a higher total denomination in its inputs than in its outputs, the difference also goes to the miner as a transaction fee. This is also the only mechanism by which BTC are issued. The genesis state contains no coins at all. In order to better understand the purpose of mining, let us examine what happens in the event of a malicious attacker. Since Bitcoin's underlying cryptography is known to be secure, the attacker will target one part of the Bitcoin system that is not protected by cryptography directly, the order of transactions. The attacker's strategy is simple. Send 100 Bitcoins to a merchant in exchange for some product, preferably a rapid delivery digital good, wait for the delivery of the product, produce another transaction, sending the same 100 BTC to himself, Four, try to convince the network that his transaction to himself was the one that came first. Once step one has taken place, after a few minutes, some miner will include the transaction in a block, say block number 270,000. About one hour after, five more blocks will have been added to the chain after that block, with each of those blocks indirectly pointing to the transaction and thus confirming it. At this point, the merchant will accept the payment as finalized to deliver the product, since we are assuming this is a digital good delivery is instant. Now, the attacker creates another transaction, sending the 100 BTC to himself. If the attacker simply released it into the wild, the transaction would not be processed. Miners will attempt to run apply S TX, and notice that TX consumes a UTXO, which is no longer in the state. So instead, the attacker creates a fork of the blockchain, started by mining another version of block 270,000, pointing to the same block 269,999 as a parent, but with the new transaction in place of the old. Because the block data is different, this requires redoing the proof of work. Furthermore, the attacker's new version of block 270,000 has a different hash, so the original 270,000 and first to 270,000 and fifth blocks do not point to it. Thus, the original chain and the attacker's new chain are completely separate. The rule is that in a fork, the longest blockchain, the one backed by the longest quantity of proof of work, is taken to be truth. And so 
legitimate miners will work on the 270,000 fifth chain, while the attacker is alone working on the 270,000th chain. In order for the attacker to make his blockchain the longest, he would need to have more computational power than the rest of the network combined in order to catch up, hence a 51% attack. Merkle trees. Let it suffice to present only a small number of nodes in a Merkle tree to give proof of the validity of a branch. Right? In any attempt to change any part of the Merkle tree will eventually lead to an inconsistency somewhere up in the chain. An important scalability feature of Bitcoin is that the block is stored in a multi-level data structure. The hash of a block is actually only the hash of the block header, a roughly 200-byte piece of data that contains the timestamp nonce previous block hash and the root hash of a data structure called the Merkle tree, storing all transactions in the block. A Merkle tree is a type of binary tree composed of a set of nodes with a large number of leaf nodes at the bottom of the tree containing the underlying data. A set of intermediate nodes where each node is the hash of its two children. And finally, a single root node also formed from the hash of its two children, representing the top of the tree. The purpose of the Merkle tree is to allow the data in the blocks to be delivered piecemeal. A node can download only the header of a block from one source, the small part of the trees relevant to them from another source. And it can still be assumed that all of the data is correct. The idea of taking the underlying blockchain idea and applying it to other concepts has a long history. In 2005, Nick Szabo came out with the concept of secure property titles with owner authority, a document describing how new advances in replicated database technology will allow for a blockchain-based system for storing a registry of who owns what land creating an elaborate framework, including concepts such as homesteading, adverse possession, and Georgian land tax. However, there was unfortunately no effective replicated database system available at the time, and so the protocol was never implemented in practice. After 2009, however, once Bitcoin's decentralized consensus was developed, a number of alternative applications rapidly began to emerge. The first is Namecoin. Created in 2010, Namecoin is best described as a decentralized name registry database. In decentralized protocols like Tor, Bitcoin, and BitMessage, there needs to be some way of identifying accounts so that other people can interact with them. But in all existing solutions, the only kind of identifier available is a pseudo-random hash like example hash. Ideally, one would be able to have an account with a name like George. However, the problem is that if one person can create an account named George, 
then someone else can use the same process to register George for themselves and, well, impersonate them. The only solution is to a first-to-file paradigm where the first registrant succeeds and the second fails, a problem perfectly suited for the Bitcoin consensus protocol. Namecoin is the oldest and most successful implementation of a name registration system using such an idea. Colored coins. The purpose of colored coins is to serve as a protocol to allow people to create their own digital currencies, or in the important trivial case of a currency with one unit, digital tokens. The reason why this works is that hashes propagate upward. If a malicious user attempts to swap in the fake transaction into the bottom of the Merkle tree, this change will cause a change in the node above, and then a change in the node above that, finally changing the root of the tree and therefore the hash of the block causing the protocol to register it as a completely different block, almost certainly with an invalid proof of work. The Merkle tree protocol is arguably essential to long-term sustainability. A full node in the Bitcoin network, one that stores and processes the entirety of every block, takes up about 15 gigabytes of space in the Bitcoin network as of April 2014, and is growing by over a gigabyte per month. Currently, this is viable for some desktop computers and not phones, and later on, or in the future, only businesses and hobbyists will be able to participate. A protocol known as Simple Payment Verification, SPV, which stands for Simplified Payment Verification, allows for another class of nodes to exist called Light Nodes, which download the block headers, verify the proof of work, and on the block headers, and then download only the branches associated with the transactions that are relevant to them. This allows light nodes to determine with a strong guarantee of security what the status of any Bitcoin transaction and their current balances, while downloading only a small portion of the entire blockchain. Alternative blockchain applications. On the Bitcoin blockchain in the Colored Coins protocol, one issues a new currency by publicly assigning a color to a specific Bitcoin UTXO and the protocol recursively defines the color of other UTXO to be the same as the color of the inputs that the transaction creating them spent. Some special rules apply in the case of mixed color inputs. This allows users to maintain wallets containing only UTXO of a specific color and then sending them around much like regular Bitcoins backtracking through the blockchain to determine the color of any UTXO that they did receive. The third example given is Metacoins. Metacoins. The idea behind a Metacoin is to have a protocol that lives atop Bitcoin using Bitcoin transactions to store Metacoin transactions, but having a different state transition function. Apply Prime. Because the Metacoin protocol cannot prevent invalid Metacoin transactions from appearing in the Bitcoin blockchain, a rule is added that if apply prime with s comma tx returns an error, the protocol defaults to apply prime s 
comma, tx is equal to s. This provides an easy mechanism for creating an arbitrary cryptocurrency protocol, potentially with advanced features that cannot be implemented inside of Bitcoin itself, but with a very low dependent development cost, since the complexities of mining and networking are already handled by the Bitcoin protocol. Thus, in general, there are two approaches toward building a consensus protocol, building an independent network and building a protocol on top of Bitcoin. The former approach, while reasonably successful in the case of applications like Namecoin, is difficult to implement. Each individual implementation needs to bootstrap an independent blockchain as well as building and testing all the necessary state transition functions and networking code. Additionally, we predict that the set of applications for decentralized consensus technology will follow a power law distribution where the vast majority of applications would be too small to warrant their own blockchain. And we note that there exists a large class of decentralized applications, particularly DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, that need to interact with one another. The Bitcoin-based approach, on the other hand, has the flaw that it does not inherit the simplified payment verification features of Bitcoin. SPV works for Bitcoin because it can use blockchain depth as a proxy for validity at some point. Once the ancestors of a transaction go far enough back, it is safe to say that they were legitimately part of the state. Blockchain-based Meta protocols, on the other hand, cannot force the blockchain not to include transactions that are valid within the context of their own protocols. Hence, a fully secure SPV meta protocol implementation would need to backward scan all the way to the beginning of the Bitcoin blockchain to determine whether or not certain transactions are valid. Currently, all light implementations of Bitcoin-based meta-protocols rely on a trusted server to provide the data, arguably a high suboptimal results, especially when one of the primary purposes of a cryptocurrency is to eliminate the need for trust. Scripting. Even without any extensions, the Bitcoin protocol actually does facilitate a weak version of a concept of smart contracts. UTXO in Bitcoin can be owned not by a public key, but also by a more complicated script expressed in a simple stack-based programming language. In this paradigm, a transaction spending that UTXO must provide data that satisfies the script Indeed, even the basic public key ownership mechanism is implemented via a script. The script takes an elliptic curve signature's input, verifies it against the transaction and the address that owns the UTXO. It returns one if the verification is successful and zero otherwise. Other more complicated scripts exist for various additional use cases. For example, one can construct a script that requires signatures from two out of a given three private keys to validate, quote, multisig, end quote, a setup 
useful for corporate accounts, secure savings accounts, and some merchant escrow situations. Scripts can also be used to pay bounties for solutions to computational problems. And one can even construct a script that says something like, this Bitcoin UTXO is yours if you can provide an SPV proof that you sent a Dogecoin transaction of this denomination to me, essentially allowing decentralized cross-cryptocurrency exchange. However, the scripting language as implemented in Bitcoin has several important limitations. Lack of Turing completeness. That is to say, while there is a large subset of communication that the Bitcoin scripting language supports, it does not nearly support everything. The main category that is missing is loops. This is done to avoid infinite loops during transaction verification. Theoretically, it is a surmountable obstacle for script programmers. Since any loop can be simulated by simply repeating the underlying code many times with an if statement. But it does lead to scripts that are very space inefficient. For example, implementing an alternative elliptic curve signature algorithm would likely require 256 repeated multiplication rounds, all individually included in the code. Value blindness. There is no way for a UTXO script to provide fine-grained control over the amount that can be withdrawn. For example, one powerful use case of an Oracle contract would be a hedging contract, where A and B put in $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, and after 30 days sends $1,000 worth of Bitcoin to A and the rest to B. This would require an oracle to determine the value of one BTC in USD, but even then, it is a massive improvement in terms of trust and infrastructure requirement over the fully centralized solutions that are available now. However, because UTXO all or nothing, the only way to achieve this is through the very inefficient hack of having many UTXO of varying denominations. One UTXO of 2 to the K for every K up to 30. And having Oracle pick which UTXO to send to A and which to B. Lack of state. UTXO can either be spent or unspent. There is no opportunity for multi-stage contracts or scripts which keep any other internal state beyond that. This makes it hard to make multi-stage options contracts, decentralized exchange offers, or two-stage cryptographic commitment protocols necessary for secure computational boundaries. It is also meant that UTXO can only be used to build simple one-off contracts and not more complex stateful contracts, such as decentralized organizations, and makes meta-protocols difficult to implement. Binary state combined with value blindness also means that another important application, withdrawal limits, is impossible. Blockchain blindness. UTXO are blind to blockchain data, such as the nonce and previous hash. This severely limits the applications in gambling, and several other categories by depriving the scripting language of a potentially valuable source of randomness. Thus, we see three approaches to building advanced applications on top of a cryptocurrency. 
building new blockchain, using scripting on top of Bitcoin, and building a meta protocol on top of Bitcoin. Building a new blockchain allows for unlimited freedom in building a feature set, but at the cost of development time and bootstrapping effort, using scripting is easier to implement and standardize, but it is very limited in its capabilities. And meta protocols, while easy, suffer from faults in scalability. With Ethereum, we intend to build a generalized framework that can provide the advantages of all three paradigms at the same time. Ethereum. The intent of Ethereum is to merge together and improve upon the concepts of scripting, altcoins, and on-chain meta-protocols, and allow developers to create arbitrary consensus-based applications that have the scalability, standardization, feature completeness, ease of development, and interoperability offered by these different paradigms all at the same time. Ethereum does this by building what is essentially the ultimate abstract foundational layer, a blockchain with a built-in Turing-complete programming language, allowing anyone to write smart contracts and decentralized applications where they can create their own arbitrary rules for ownership, transaction formats, and state transition functions. A bare-bones version of Namecoin can be written in two lines of code, and other protocols like currencies and reputation systems can be built in under 20. Smart contracts, cryptographic boxes that contain value and only unlock if certain conditions are met, can also be built on top of our platform, with vastly more power than that offered by Bitcoin scripting because the added powers of Turing completeness, value awareness, blockchain awareness, and state Ethereum accounts. In Ethereum, the state is made up of objects called accounts, with each account having a 20-byte address, and a state transactions being directed transfers of value and information between accounts. An Ethereum account contains four fields. A nonce, a counter that's used to make sure each transaction can only be processed once the account's current Ether balance, the account's contract code, if present, the account's storage can be empty by default. Ether is the main internal crypto fuel of Ethereum and is used to pay transaction fees. In general, there are two types of accounts, externally owned accounts controlled by private keys and contract accounts controlled by their contract code. An externally owned account, EOA, has no code, and one can send messages from an externally owned account by creating and signing a transaction. In a contract account, every time the contract account receives a message, its code activates, allowing it to read and write to internal storage and send other messages or create contracts in turn. Messages and Transactions Messages in Ethereum are somewhat similar to transactions in Bitcoin, but with three important differences. First, Ethereum messages can be created either by an external entity or a contract, whereas a Bitcoin transaction can only be created externally. Second, there is an 
explicit option for Ethereum messages to contain data. Finally, the recipient of an Ethereum message is a contract account that has the option to return a response. This means that Ethereum messages also encompass the concept of functions. The term transaction is used in Ethereum to refer to the signed data package that stores a message to be sent from an externally owned account. Transactions contain the recipient of the message, a signature identifying the sender, the amount of ether and the data to send, as well as two values called start gas and gas price. In order to prevent exponential blowup and infinite loops in code, each transaction is required to set a limit to how many computational steps of code execution it can spawn, including both the initial message and any additional messages that get spawned during execution. Start gas is this limit, and gas price is the fee to pay the miner per computational step. If transaction execution runs out of gas, all state changes revert, except for the payment of the fees. And if transaction execution halts with some gas remaining, then the remaining portion of the fees is refunded to the sender. There is also a separate transaction type and a corresponding message type for creating a contract. The address of a contract is calculated based on the hash of the account, nonce, and transaction data. An important consequence of the message mechanism is the first-class citizen property of Ethereum. The idea that contracts have equivalent power to EOAs, externally owned accounts, including the ability to send messages and to create other contracts. This allows contracts to simultaneously serve many different roles. For example, one might have a member of a decentralized organization or a contract to be an escrow amount another contract between a paranoid individual employing custom quantum proof Lamport signatures, a third contract, and a co-signing entity which itself uses an account with five keys for security, a fourth contract. The strength of the Ethereum platform is that the decentralized organization and the escrow contract do not need to care about what kind of account each party to the contract is. Ethereum State Transition Function The Ethereum State Transition Function, apply S, TX, goes to S prime, can be defined as follows. Check if the transaction is well formed, has the right number of values, the signature is valid, and the nonce matches the nonce in the sender's account. If not, return an error. 2. Calculate the transaction fee as start gas times gas price and determine the sending address from the signature. Subtract the fee from the sender's account balance and increment the sender's nonce. If there's not enough balance to spend, return an error. Initialize gas is equal to start gas and take off a certain quantity of gas per byte to pay for the bytes in the transaction. Transfer the transaction value from the sender's account to the receiving account. If the receiving account does not yet exist, create it. If the receiving account is a contract, run the contract's code. 
either to completion or until the execution runs out of gas. If the value transfer failed because the sender did not have enough money or the code execution ran out of gas, revert all state changes except the payment of the fees and add the fees to the miner's account. Otherwise, refund the fees for all remaining gas to the sender and send the fees paid for gas consumed to the miner. For example, suppose that the contract's code is Note, in reality, the contract code is written in the low-level EVM code. This example is written in Serpent, our high-level language for clarity, and can be compiled down to EVM code. Suppose that the contract storage starts off empty and a transaction is sent with 10 Ether value, 2,000 gas, 0.001 Ether gas price, and two data fields, 2, comma, Charlie. The process for the state transition function in this case is as follows. 1. Check that the transaction is valid and well-formed. 2. Check the transaction sender has at least 2,000 times 0.001 equals 2 Ether. If it is, subtract 2 Ether from the sender's account. Initialize gas, which is equal to 2,000. Assume the transaction is 170 bytes long and the byte fee is 5. Subtract 850 so that there is 1,150 gas left. Subtract 10 more Ether from the sender's account and add it to the contract's account. Run the code. In this case, this is simple. It checks the contract storage at index 2 is used, notices that it is not, and sets the storage at index 2 to change the value Charlie. Suppose this takes 187 gas, so the remaining amount of gas is 1150 minus 187 equals 963. Add 963 times 0.001 equals 9.63 ether back to the sender's account and return the resulting state if there was no contracts at the receiving end of the transaction. Then the total transaction fee would simply be equal to the provided gas price multiplied by the length of the transaction in bytes, and the data set alongside the transaction would be irrelevant. Additionally, note that contract-initiated messages can assign a gas limit to the computation that they spawn, and if the sub-computation runs out of gas, it gets reverted, only to the points of the message call. Hence, just like transactions, Contracts can secure their limited computational resources by setting strict limits on the sub-computations that they spawn. Code Execution The code in Ethereum contracts is written in a low-level, stack-based bytecode language, referred to as Ethereum Virtual Machine Code, or EVM code. The code consists of a series of bytes where each byte represents an operation. In general, Code execution is an infinite loop that consists of repeatedly carrying out the operation at the current program counter, which begins at zero, and then by incrementing the program counter by one until the code is reached or an error or stop or return instruction is detected. 
the operations have access to three types of spaces in which to store data. The stack, a last in first out counter to which 32 byte values can be pushed and popped. Memory, an infinitely expandable byte array. The contract's long-term storage, a key value store, where keys and values are both 32 bytes. Unlike stack and memory, which reset after computation ends, storage persists for the long term. The code can also access the value, sender, and data of the incoming message as well as block header data, and the code can also return a byte array of data as an output. The formal execution model of EVM code is surprisingly simple. While the Ethereum virtual machine is running, its full computational state can be defined by the tuple, block state, transaction, message, code, memory, stack, PC, gas where block state is the global state containing all accounts and includes balances and storage. Every round of execution, the current instruction is found by taking the PC, the TH byte of code, and each instruction has its own definition in terms of how it affects the tuple. For example, add pops two items off the stack and pushes their sum reduces gas by one, and increments PC by one. An S-store pushes the top two items off the stack and inserts the second item into the contract storage at the index specified by the first item, as well as reducing gas by up to 200 and incrementing PC by one. Although there are many ways to optimize Ethereum via just-in-time compilation, the basic implementation of Ethereum can be done in just a few hundred lines of code. Blockchain and mining. The Ethereum blockchain is in many ways similar to the Bitcoin blockchain, although it does have some differences. The main difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin with regard to the blockchain architecture is that unlike Bitcoin, Ethereum blocks contain a copy of both the transaction list and the most recent state. Aside from that, Two other values, the block number and the difficulty, are also stored in the block. The block validation algorithm in Ethereum is as follows. Check if the previous block referenced exists and is valid. Step 1. Step 2. Check that the timestamp of the block is greater than that of the referenced previous block and less than 15 minutes into the future. Step 3. Check that the block number difficulty, transaction route, uncle root and gas limit, various low-level Ethereum-specific concepts, are valid. Step 4. Check that the proof-of-work on the blockchain is valid. Step 5. Let S of 0 be the state root of the previous block. The approach may seem highly inefficient at first glance because it needs to store the entire state with each block, but in reality, efficiency should be comparable to that of Bitcoin. The reason is that the state is stored in the tree structure, and after each block, only a small part of the tree needs to be changed. Thus, in general, between two adjacent blocks, the vast majority of the tree should be the same, and therefore data can be stored once 
and referenced twice using pointers, hashes of subtrees, a special kind of tree known as a Patricia tree is used to accomplish this, including a modification to the Merkle tree concept that allows for nodes to be inserted and deleted and not just changed efficiently. Additionally, because of all the state information is part of the last block, there's no need to store the entire blockchain history, a strategy which, if it could be applied to Bitcoin, can be calculated to provide 5 to 20x savings in space. Applications. In general, there are three kinds of applications on top of Ethereum. The first category is financial applications, providing users with more powerful ways of managing and entering into contracts using their money. This includes sub-currencies, financial derivatives, hedging contracts, savings wallets, wills, and ultimately, even some classes of full-scale employment contracts. The second category is semi-financial applications, where money is involved, but there is also a heavy non-money side to what is being done. A perfect example is self-enforcing bounties for solutions to computational problems. Finally, there are applications such as online voting and decentralized governments that are not financial at all. Token systems. On, on blockchain systems have many applications ranging from subcurrencies representing assets such as USD or gold to company stocks, individual tokens representing smart property, secure unforgeable coupons, and even token systems with no ties to conventional value at all, used as point systems for incentivization. Token systems are surprisingly easy to implement in Ethereum. The key point to understand is that all a currency or token system fundamentally is, is a database with one operation. Subtract X units from A and give X units to B. With the provisio that X had at least X units before the transaction and two, the transaction is approved by A. So all that it takes to implement a token system is to implement this logic into a contract. The basic code for implementing a token system in Serpent looks as follows. This is essentially a literal implementation of the banking system, state transition function described further above in this document. A few lines extra of code need to be added to provide for the initial step of dispersing the currency units in the first place and a few other edge cases. And ideally, a function would be added to let other contracts query for the balance of an address. But that's all there is to it. Theoretically, Ethereum-based token systems acting as sub-currencies can potentially include another important feature that on-chain Bitcoin-based meta-currencies lack the ability to pay transaction fees directly in that currency. The way this would be implemented is that the contract would maintain an Ether balance with which it would refund Ether used to pay fees to the sender, and it would refill this balance by collecting the internal currency units that it takes in fees and reselling them in a constant running action. Users would thus need to activate their accounts with Ether, but 
Once the ether is there, it would be reusable because the contract would refund it each time. Financial derivatives and stable value currencies. Financial derivatives are the most common application of a smart contract and one of the simplest to implement in code. The main challenges in implementing financial contracts is that the majority of them require reference to an external price ticker. For example, a very desirable application is a smart contract that hedges against the volatility of Ether or another cryptocurrency with respect to the US dollar. But doing this requires the contract to know exactly what the value of ETH USD is. The simplest way to do this is through a data feed. Contract maintained by a specific party, example, NASDAQ, designed so that the party has the ability to update the contract as needed and providing an interface that allows other contracts to send a message to that contract and get back a response that provides the price. Given that critical ingredient, the hedging contract would look as follows. 1. Wait for party A to input 1,000 Ether. 2. Wait for party B to input 1,000 Ether. 3. Record the USD value of 1,000 Ether calculated by querying the data feed contract in storage. Say this is X dollars. 4. After 30 days, allow A or B to ping the contract in order to send X dollars worth of Ether calculated by querying the data feed contract again to get the new price to A and the rest to B. Such a contract would have a significant potential in crypto commerce. One of the main problems cited about cryptocurrency is the fact that it's volatile. Although many users and merchants may want the security and convenience of dealing with cryptographic assets, they may not wish to face that prospect of losing 23% of the value of their funds in a single day. Up until now, the most commonly proposed solution has been issuer-backed assets. The idea that an issuer creates a subcurrency in which they have the right to issue and revoke units and provide one unit of the currency to anyone who provides them offline with one unit of a specified underlying asset. The issuer then promises to provide one unit of the underlying asset to anyone who sends back one unit of the crypto asset. This mechanism allows any non-cryptographic assets to be uplifted into a single cryptographic asset, provided that the issuer can be trusted. In practice, however, issuers are not always trustworthy, and in some cases, the banking infrastructure is too weak or too hostile for such services to exist. Financial derivatives provide an alternative. Here, instead of a single issuer providing the funds to back up an asset, a decentralized market of speculators betting that the price of a cryptographic reference asset will go up plays that role. Unlike issuers, speculators have no option to default on their side of the bargain because the hedging contract holds their funds in escrow. Note that this approach is not fully decentralized because a trusted source is still needed to provide the price ticker. Although arguably, even still, this is a massive improvement in terms of reducing infrastructure requirements. Unlike being an issuer, 
Issuing a price feed requires no licenses and can likely be categorized as free speech and reducing the potential for fraud. Identity and reputation systems. The earliest alternative cryptocurrency of all, Namecoin, attempted to use a Bitcoin-like blockchain to provide a name registration system where users can register their names in a public database alongside other data. The major cited use case is for a DNS system, mapping domain names like Bitcoin.org or in Namecoin's case, Bitcoin.bit to an IP address. Other use cases include email authentication and potentially more advanced reputation systems. Here is the basic contract to provide a Namecoin-like registration system on Ethereum. The contract is very simple. All it is is a database inside the Ethereum network that can be added to but not modified or removed from. Anyone can register a name with some value and that registration then sticks forever. A more sophisticated name registration contract will also have a function clause allowing other contracts to query it as well as a mechanism for the owner of a name to change the data or transfer ownership. One can even add reputation and web of trust functionality on top. Decentralized file storage. Over the past few years, there have emerged a number of popular online file storage startups, the most prominent being Dropbox, seeking to allow users to upload a backup of their hard drive and have the service store the backup and allow the user to access it in exchange for a monthly fee. However, at this point, the file storage market is at times relatively inefficient. A cursory look at various existing solutions shows that, particularly at the Uncanny Valley, 2200 gigabyte levels which neither free quotas nor enterprise-level discounts kick in. Monthly prices for mainstream file storage costs are such that you are paying for more than the cost of the entire hard drive in a single month. Ethereum contracts can allow for the development of a decentralized file storage ecosystem where individuals can earn small quantities of money by renting out their hard drives and unused disk space can be further used to drive down the costs of file storage. The key underpinning piece of such a device would be that what we have termed the decentralized Dropbox contract. And this contract works as follows. First, one splits the desired data up into blocks, encrypting each block for privacy and builds a Merkle tree out on top of it. Then one makes a contract with the rule that every n blocks the contract would pick a random index in the Merkle tree using the previous blocks hash accessible from contract code as a source of randomness and give x ether to the first entity to supply a transaction with a simplified paramount verification like proof of ownership of the block at that particular index in the tree. When a user wants to re-download their file, they can use a micropayment channel to recover the file. The most 
fee-efficient approach is for the payer to not publish the transaction until the end, instead replacing the transaction with a slightly more lucrative one with the same nonce after every 32 kilobytes. An important feature of the protocol is that although it may seem like one is trusting many random nodes not to forget the file, one can reduce that risk down to near zero by splitting the file into many pieces via secret sharding and watching the contracts to see each piece is still in some node's possession. If a contract is still paying out money, that provides a cryptographic proof that someone out there is storing the file. Decentralized Autonomous Organizations The general concept of a DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization, is that a virtual entity has a certain set of members or shareholders which perhaps, with a 67% majority, have the right to spend the entity's funds and modify its code. The members would collectively decide on how the organization should allocate its funds. Methods for allocating a DAO's funds could range from bounties, salaries, to even more exotic mechanisms, such as an internal currency to reward work. This essentially replicates the legal trappings of a traditional company or nonprofit, but using only cryptographic blockchain technology for enforcement. So far, much of the talk around DAOs have been around the capitalist model of a decentralized autonomous corporation, DAC, D-A-C, with dividend-receiving shareholders and tradable shares. An alternative, perhaps described as a decentralized autonomous community, would have all of its members have an equal share in the decision, making and require 67% of existing members to agree to add or remove a member. The requirement that one person can only have one membership would then need to be enforced collectively by the group. A general outline for how to code a DO is as follows. The simplest design is simply a piece of self-modifying code that changes if two-thirds of members agree on a change. Although code is theoretically immutable, one can easily get around this and have a de facto mutability by having chunks of the code in separate contracts and having the addresses of which contracts to call stored in the modifiable storage. In a simple implementation of such a DAO contract, there would be three transaction types distinguished by the data provided in the transaction. We have an array of 0, I, K, and V. To register a proposal with an index I to change the address at storage index K to value V. The variables 0, comma, I to register a vote in favor of proposal I. And then 2, comma, I to finalize proposal I if enough votes have been made. The contract would then have clauses for each of these. It would maintain a record of all open storage changes along with a list of who voted for them. It would also have a list of all members. When any storage change gets 
to two-thirds of members voting for it, in our example, a finalizing transaction could execute the change. A more sophisticated skeleton would also have built-in voting ability for features like sending a transaction, adding members, and revoking members, and may even provide for liquid democracy-style voting delegation. Anyone can assign someone to vote for them, and assignment is transitive. So if A assigns B and B assigns C, then C determines A's vote. This design would allow the DO, decentralized organization, to grow organically as a decentralized community, allowing people to eventually delegate the task of filtering out who is a member to specialists. Although, unlike in the current system, specialists can easily pop in and out of existence over time as individual community members change their alignments. An alternative model is for a decentralized corporation, where any account can have zero or more shares, and two-thirds of the shares are required to make a decision. A complete skeleton would involve asset management functionality, the ability to make an offer to buy or sell shares, and the ability to accept offers, preferably, with an order matching mechanism inside the contract. Delegation would also exist liquid democracy style, generalizing the concept of a board of directors. In the future, more advanced mechanisms for organizational governance may be implemented. It is at this point that a decentralized organization, DO, can start to be described as a decentralized autonomous organization. The difference between a DO and a DAO is fuzzy, but the general dividing line is whether the governance is generally carried out via a political-like process or an automatic process. A good intuitive test is the no common language criterion. Can the organization still function if no two members spoke the same language? Clearly, a simple, traditional shareholder-style corporation would fail, whereas something like the Bitcoin protocol would be much more likely to succeed. Robin Hansen's Futury, a mechanism for organizational governance via prediction markets, is a good example of what a truly autonomous governance system may look like. Note that one should not necessarily assume that all DAOs are superior to all decentralized organizations. Automation, being one of the key features of a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, is simply a paradigm that is likely to have very large benefits in certain particular places and may not be practical in others. And many semi-DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, are also likely to exist. Future Applications 1. Savings Wallets Suppose that Alice wants to keep her funds safe but is worried that she will lose or someone will hack her privacy key. She puts Ether into a contract with Bob, a bank, as follows. Alice alone can withdraw a maximum of 1% of the funds per day. Bob alone can withdraw a maximum of 1% of the funds per day. But Alice has the ability to make a transaction with her key, shutting off this ability. Alice and Bob together can withdraw anything. Normally, 1% a day is enough for Alice, and if Alice wants to withdraw more, she can contact Bob for help. If Alice's key gets hacked, she runs 
to Bob to move the funds to a new contract. If she loses her key, Bob will get the funds out eventually. Bob turns out to be malicious, then she can turn off his ability to withdraw. 2. Crop Insurance One can easily make a financial derivatives contract, but using a data feed of the weather instead of any price index. If a farmer in Iowa purchases a derivative that pays out inversely based on the precipitation in Iowa, then if there is a drought, the farmer will automatically receive money, and if there is enough rain, the farmer will be happy because their crops will do well. 3. A decentralized data feed For financial contracts for difference, it may actually be possible to decentralize the data feed via a protocol called shelling coin. Shelling coin basically works as follows. N parties all put into the system the value of a given datum. Example, the ETH USD price pair. These values are sorted and everyone between the 25th and 75th percentiles get one token as reward. Everyone has the incentive to provide the answer that everyone else provides and only the value that a large number of players can realistically agree on is the obvious default, the truth. This creates a decentralized protocol that can theoretically provide any number of values, including the ETH USD price, the temperature in Berlin, or even the result of a particular hard computation. 4. Multi-signature escrow Bitcoin allows multi-signature transaction contracts where, for example, three out of a given five keys can spend the funds. Ethereum allows for more granularity, for example. Four out of five can spend everything. Three out of five can spend up to 10% per day. And two out of five can spend up to 0.5% per day. Additionally, Ethereum multisig is asynchronous. Two parties can register their signatures on the blockchain at different times. And the last signature will automatically send the transaction. Five, cloud computing. The EVM technology can also be used to create a verifiable computing environment, allowing other users to ask others to carry out computations and then optimally asking for proofs that computations at certain randomly selected checkpoints were done correctly. This allows for the creation of a cloud computing market where any user can participate with their desktop, laptop, or specialized server and spot checking together with security deposits can be used to ensure that the system is trustworthy. The example is nodes cannot profitably cheat. Although such a system may not be suitable for all tasks, tasks that require a high level of inner process communication, for example, cannot be easily done with a large cloud of nodes. Other tasks, however, are much easier to paralyze. Projects like SETI at home, folding at home, and genetic algorithms can easily be implemented on top of such a platform. 6. Peer-to-peer -peer gambling Any number of peer-to-peer -peer gambling protocols such as Frank Stajo and Richard Clayton's Cyberdice can be implemented on the Ethereum blockchain. The simplest gambling protocol is actually a simple a contract for difference on the next block hash and more advanced protocols can be built up from there, creating gambling services with near-zero fees that have no ability to cheat. 7. Prediction Markets Provided an Oracle or Shelling Coin prediction markets are easy to implement, 
and prediction markets together with shelling coin may prove to be the first mainstream application of futury as a governance protocol for decentralized organizations. Eight, on-chain decentralized marketplaces using the identity and reputation systems as a base. Miscellanea and concerns. Modified ghost implementation. The greedy heaviest observed subtree, ghost protocol, is an innovation first introduced by Yantan Samplonsky and Aviv Zoar in December 2013. The motivation behind Ghost is that blockchains with fast confirmation times currently suffer from reduced security due to a high stale rate. Because blocks take a certain time to propagate through the network, if miner A mines a block and then miner B happens to mine another block before miner A's block propagates to miner B's block, will end up wasted and will not contribute to network security. Furthermore, there is a centralization issue. If miner A is a mining pool with 30% hash power and B has 10% hash power, A will have a risk of producing a sale block 70% of the time, since the other 30% of the time A produced the last block and so will get mining data immediately whereas B will have a risk of producing a stale block 90% of the time. Thus, if the block interval is short enough for the stale rate to be high, A will be substantially more efficient simply by virtue of its size. With the two effects combined, blockchains which produce blocks quickly are very likely to lead one mining pool having a large enough percent of the network hash power to have a de facto control over the mining process. As described by Simplonsky and Zoar, Ghost solves the first issue of network security loss by including stale blocks in the calculation of which chain is the longest. That is to say, not just the parents and further ancestors of a block, but also the stale children of the block's ancestors. Ethereum's jargon refers to these as uncles. These are added to the calculation of which blocks has the longest total proof of work backing it. To solve the second issue of centralization bias, we go beyond the protocol described by Samplonsky and Zohar and also allow stales to be registered into the main chain to receive a block reward. A stale block receives 93.75% of its base reward and the nephew that includes the stale block receives the remaining 6.25%. Transaction fees, however, are not awarded to uncles. Ethereum implements a simplified version of Ghost, which only goes down five levels. Specifically, a stale block can only be included as an uncle by the second to fifth generation child of its parent, and not by any block with a more distant relation, example, sixth generation child of a parent or third generation child of a grandparent. This was done for several reasons. First, unlimited ghost would include too many complications into the calculation of which uncles for a given block are valid. Second, unlimited ghost with compensation as used in Ethereum removes the incentive for a miner to mine on the main chain and not the chain of a public attacker. Finally, calculations show that five-level ghosts 
with incentivization is over 95% efficient, even when a 15-second block time and miners with 25% hash power show centralization gains of less than 3%. The next section is about fees, which obviously have been a major area of innovation in the blockchain space. Let's see what the 2014 white paper had to say about fees. Because every transaction published into the blockchain imposes on the network the cost of needing to download and verify it, there is a need for some regulatory mechanism typically involving transaction fees to prevent abuse. The default approach used in Bitcoin is to have purely voluntary fees, relying on miners to act as the gatekeepers and set dynamic minimums. And this approach has been received very favorably in the Bitcoin community, particularly because it is market-based, allowing supply and demand between miners and transactions senders to determine the price. And the problem with this line of reasoning is, however, that transaction processing is not a market. Although it is intuitively attractive to construe transaction processing as a service that the miner is offering to the sender, in reality, Every transaction that a miner includes will need to be processed by every node in the network. So the vast majority of the cost of transaction processing is borne by third parties and not by the miner that is taking the decision of whether or not to include it. Hence, the tragedy of the commons problems are very likely to occur. However, as it turns out, this flaw in the market-based mechanism, when given a particular inaccurate, simplifying assumption, magically cancels itself out. The argument is as follows. Suppose that, one, a transaction leads to K operations, offering the reward KR to any miner that includes it where R is set by the sender and K and R are roughly visible to the miner beforehand. Two, an operation has a processing cost of C to any node, i.e. all nodes have equal efficiency. Three, there are N mining nodes, each with exactly equal processing power, i.e. one by N of the total. Four, no non-mining full nodes exist. A miner would be willing to process a transaction if the expected reward is greater than the cost. Thus, the expected reward is K R by N. Since the miner has a one by N chance of processing the next block and the processing cost for the miner is simply K of C, hence miners will include transactions where K of R by N is greater than k of c or r is greater than n of c note that r is the per operation fee provided by the sender and is thus a lower bound on the benefits that the sender derives from the transaction and n of c is the cost to the entire network together of processing an operation hence miners have the incentive to include only those transactions for which the total utilitarian benefit exceeds the cost. However, there are several important deviations from those assumptions in reality. 
One, the miner does not pay a higher cost to process the transaction than other verifying nodes, since the extra verification time delays block propagation and thus increases the chance the block will become stale. There do not exist non-mining full nodes. Three, the mining power distribution may end up radically inegalitarian in practice. And the reason is because Obviously, individuals who have more money can buy more mining equipment. With more mining equipment, they can contribute to a larger share of the total hash power that's used to secure the network. 4. Speculators, political enemies, and crazies whose utility function includes causing harm to the network do exist, and they can cleverly set up contracts whose cost is much lower than the cost paid by others validating nodes. Point one above provides a tendency for the miner to include fewer transactions and point two increases, N of C. Hence, these two effects at least partially cancel each other out. Points three and four are the major issue. To solve them, we simply institute a floating cap. No block can have more operations than BLK limits factor, block limit factors is the variable, times the long-term exponential moving average. Specifically, I'm not gonna read the functions, will likely be changed after further analysis. And I would I would highly recommend you to go ahead and to look at the, the code, um, the variable names and the functions that are used throughout this paper, you can find a link to the original 2014 white paper written by Vitalik Buterin in the um, comments of this podcast episode. Computation and Turing completeness. An important note is that the Ethereum virtual machine is Turing complete. This means that the EVM code can encode any computation that can be conceivably carried out, including infinite loops, EVM code, allows looping in two ways. First, there is a jump instruction that allows the program to jump back to a previous spot in the code and a jump I instruction to do conditional jumping, allowing for statements like while x is less than 27, x is equal to x times 2. Second, contracts can call other contracts, potentially allowing for looping through recursion. Naturally, this leads to a problem can malicious users essentially shut miners and full nodes down by forcing them to enter into an infinite loop? The issue arises because of a problem in computer science known as the halting problem. There is no way to tell in the general case whether or not a given program will ever halt. As described in the state transition section, our solution works by requiring a transaction to set a maximum number of computational steps that it is allowed to take. And even if execution takes longer, computation is reverted, but fees are still paid. Messages work in the same way. To show the motivation behind our solution, consider the following examples. An attacker creates a contract which runs an infinite loop and then sends a transaction activating that loop to the miner. The miner will process the transaction, running the infinite loop, and wait for it to run out of gas. Even though the execution runs out of gas and stops halfway through, 
the transaction is still valid and the miner can still claim the fee from the attacker for each computational step. An attacker creates a very long infinite loop with the intent of forcing the miner to keep computing for such a long time that by the time computation finishes, a few more blocks will have come out and it will not be possible for the miner to include the transaction to claim the fee. However, the attacker will be required to submit a value for start gas, limiting the number of computational steps that the execution can take. So the miner will know ahead of time that the computation will take an extensively large number of steps. An attacker sees a contract with no code of some form like send a comma contract.storage of a semicolon contract.storage of a is equal to zero and sends a transaction with just enough gas to run the first step but not the second, making the withdraw but not letting the balance go down. The contract author does not need to worry about protecting against such attacks because if the execution stops halfway through, the change gets reverted. A financial contract works by taking the median of nine proprietary data feeds in order to minimize risk. An attacker takes over one of the data feeds, which is designed to be modifiable via the variable address call mechanism described in the section on DAOs, and convert it to run an infinite loop, thereby attempting to force any attempts to claim funds from the financial contract to run out of gas. However, the financial contract can set a gas limit on the message to prevent this problem. The alternative to Turing completeness is Turing incompleteness, where jump and jump I do not exist, and only one copy of each contract is allowed to exist in the call stack at a given time. With this system, the fee system described and the uncertainties around the effectiveness of our solution might not be necessary, as the cost of execution of a contract would be bounded above by its size. Additionally, Turing incompleteness is not even that big of a limitation. Out of all the contract examples we have conceived internally, so far only one required a loop, and even that loop could be removed by making 26 repetitions of one line piece of code. Given the serious implications of Turing incompleteness and the limited benefit, why not simply have a Turing incomplete language? In reality, however, Turing incompleteness is far from a neat solution to the problem. To see why, consider the following contracts. Run one step of a program and record the change in storage. Now send a transaction to A. Thus, in 51 transactions, we have a contract that takes up two to the 50th computational steps. Miners could try to detect such a large bombs ahead of time, but by maintaining a value alongside each contract specifying the maximum number of computational steps it can take and calculating this for contracts calling other contracts recursively, but that would require miners to forbid contracts that create other contracts, since the creation and execution of all 50 contracts above could easily be rolled into a single contract. Another problematic point is that the address field of a message is a variable, so in general it may not even be possible to tell which other contracts a given contract will call ahead of time. 
Hence, all in all, we have a surprising conclusion. Turing completeness is surprisingly easy to manage and the lack of one way. 10 to the 12th, Zabo. 10 to the 15th, Finney. 10 to the 18th, Ether. This should be taken as an expanded version of the concepts of dollar, cents, Bitcoin, and Satoshis. In the near future, we expect Ether to be used for ordinary transactions, Finney for microtransactions, Zabo and Way for technical discussions around fees and protocol implementation. Turing completeness is equally surprisingly difficult to manage unless the exact same controls are in place. But in that case, why not just let the protocol be Turing complete? Currency and issuance. The Ethereum network includes its own built-in currency, Ether, which serves the dual purpose of providing a primary liquidity layer to allow for efficient exchange between various types of digital assets, and more importantly, of providing a mechanism for paying transaction fees for convenience and to avoid future argument. See the current MBTC-UBTC Satoshi debate in Bitcoin. The denominations will be pre-labeled. The issuance model will be as follows. Ether will be released in a currency sale at the price of 1337 to 2000 Ether per Bitcoin, a mechanism intended to fund the Ethereum organization and pay for development that has been used with success by a number of other cryptographic platforms. Early buyers will benefit from a larger discount. The BTC received from the sale will be used entirely to pay the salaries and bounties to developers, researchers, and projects in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. 0.99x, the total amount sold, will be allocated to early contributors who participated in the development before Bitcoin funding or certainty of funding was available, and another 0.099 times will be allocated to the long-term research projects. 0.26, the total amount sold, will be allocated to miners per year forever after that point. Issuance breakdown. The permanent linear supply growth model reduces the risk of what some see as excessive wealth concentration in Bitcoin and gives individuals living in present and future eras a fair chance to acquire currency units let some discouraging depreciation of Ether because the supply growth rate as a percentage still tends towards zero over time. We also theorize that because coins are always lost over time due to carelessness, death, etc., and coin loss can be modeled as a percentage of total supply each year, that the total currency supply and circulation will in fact eventually stabilize at a value equal to annual issuance divided by the total loss rate. Despite the linear currency issuance, just like with Bitcoin over time, the supply growth rate nevertheless tends to zero. Mining centralization. The Bitcoin mining algorithm basically works by having miners compute SHA-256 on slightly modified versions of the block headers millions of times over and over again until eventually one node comes up with a version whose hash is less than the target, 
currently around 2 to the 190th power. However, this mining algorithm is vulnerable to two kinds of centralization. The first is the mining ecosystem has come to be dominated by ASIC application-specific integrated circuits, computer chips designed for, and therefore thousands of times more efficient, the specific task of mining Bitcoin. This means that Bitcoin mining is no longer a highly decentralized and egalitarian pursuit requiring millions of dollars of capital to efficiently participate in. Second, Bitcoin miners do not actually perform block validation locally. Instead, they rely on a centralized mining pool to provide the block headers. This problem is arguably worse because at the time of this writing, the top two mining pools indirectly control roughly 50% of processing power in the Bitcoin network. Although this it is mitigated by the fact that miners can switch to another mining pool if a certain pool or coalition attempts a 51% attack, the current intent at Ethereum is to use a mining algorithm based on randomly generating a unique hash function for every 1,000 nonces, using a sufficiently broad range of computation to remove the benefit of specialized hardware. Such a strategy will certainly not reduce the gain of centralization to zero, but it does not need to. Note that each individual user on their private laptop or desktop can perform a certain quantity of mining activity almost for free, paying only electronic costs, but after the point of 100% CPU utilization of their computer, additional mining will require them to pay for both electricity and hardware. ASIC mining companies need to pay for electricity and hardware starting from the first hash. Hence, if centralization gains can be kept below this ratio, E plus H by E, then even if ASICs are made, there will still be room for ordinary miners. Additionally, we intend to design the mining algorithm so that mining requires access to the entire blockchain, forcing miners to store the entire blockchain and at least be capable of verifying every transaction. This removes the need for centralized mining pools, although mining pools can still serve to the legitimate role of evening out the randomness of reward distribution. This function can be served equally well by peer-to-peer -peer pools with no central control. It additionally helps to fight centralization by increasing the number of full nodes in the network so that the network remains reasonably decentralized even if the most ordinary users prefer light clients. Scalability. One common concern about Ethereum is the issue of scalability. Like Bitcoin, Ethereum suffers from the flaw that every transaction needs to be processed by every node in the network. With Bitcoin, the size of the current blockchain rests at about 20 gigabytes, growing by about 1 megabyte per hour. If the Bitcoin network were to process Visa's 2,000 transactions per second, it would grow by 1 megabyte per 3 seconds, 1 gigabyte per hour, 8 terabytes per year. Ethereum is likely to suffer a similar growth pattern, worsened by the fact that there will still be many applications on top of the Ethereum blockchain instead of just a currency, as is the case with Bitcoin. But ameliorated by the fact that Ethereum full nodes need to just store the state instead of the entire blockchain. 
The problem with such large blockchain size is centralization risk. If the blockchain size increases to say 100 terabytes, then the likely scenario would be that only a very small number of large businesses would run full nodes with all regular users using light SPV nodes. In such a situation, there arises the potential concern that the full nodes could band together and all agree to cheat in some profitable fashion. Light nodes would have no way of detecting this immediately. Of course, at least one honest full node would likely exist, and after a few hours, information about the fraud would trickle out through the channels, like Reddit. But at that point, would be too late. It would be up to the ordinary users to organize an effort to blacklist the given blocks, a massive and likely infeasible coordination problem on a similar scale, as that of pulling off a successful 51% attack. In the case of Bitcoin, this is currently a problem, but there exists a blockchain modification suggestion by Peter Todd which would alleviate this issue. In the near term, Ethereum will use two additional strategies to cope with this problem because of the first blockchain-based mining algorithms at least every miner will be forced to be a full node creating a lower bound on the number of full nodes second and more importantly however we will introduce an intermediate state tree root in the blockchain after processing each transaction even if block validation is centralized as long as one honest verifying node exists, the centralization problem can be circumvented via a verification protocol. If a miner publishes an invalid block, then the block must either be badly formatted or the state S of N is incorrect. Since S of zero is known to be correct, there must be some first state S of I that is incorrect where S of I minus one is correct. The verifying node would provide the index i along with a proof of invalidity consisting of the subset of patricia trees needing to process nodes would be able to use those nodes that run part of the computation and see that s of i generated does not match the s of i provided another more sophisticated attack would involve the malicious miners publishing incomplete blocks, so the full information does not even exist to determine whether or not blocks are valid. The solution to this is a challenge response protocol. Verification nodes issue challenges in the form of target transaction indices. And upon receiving a node, a light node treats the block as untrusted until another node, whether the miner or another verifier, provides a subset of Patricia nodes as a proof of validity. Putting it all together, decentralized applications. The contract mechanism described above allows anyone to build what is essentially a command line application run on a virtual machine that is executed by consensus across the entire network, allowing it to modify a globally accessible state as its hard drive. However, for most people, the command line interface that is the transaction sending mechanism is not sufficiently user-friendly to make decentralization an attractive mainstream alternative. To this end, a complete decentralized application should consist of both low-level business logic components 
whether implemented entirely on Ethereum using a combination of Ethereum and other systems. A P2P messaging layer, one of which is currently planned to be put into the Ethereum clients or other systems entirely and high-level graphical user interface components. The Ethereum client's design is to serve as a web browser, but not include support for a ETH, JavaScript API object, which specialized web pages viewed in the client will be used to interact with the Ethereum blockchain. From the point of view of the traditional web, these web pages are entirely static content since the blockchain and other decentralized protocols will serve as a complete replacement for the server for the purpose of holding and handling user-initiated requests. Eventually, decentralized protocols, hopefully themselves in some fashion using Ethereum, may be used to store the web pages themselves. Conclusion, the Ethereum protocol was originally conceived as an upgraded version of a cryptocurrency, providing advanced features such as on-blockchain escrow, withdrawal limits, and financial contracts, gambling markets, and the like, via a highly generalized programming language. The Ethereum protocol would not support any of the applications directly, but the existence of a Turing-complete programming language means that arbitrary contracts can theoretically be created for any transaction type or application. What is more interesting about Ethereum, however, is that the Ethereum protocol moves far beyond just currency. Protocols and decentralized applications around decentralized file storage, decentralized computation, and decentralized prediction markets, among dozens of other such concepts, have the potential to substantially increase the efficiency of the computational industry and provide a massive boost to other peer-to-peer protocols by adding for the first time an economic layer. Finally, there is also a substantial array of applications that have nothing to do with money at all. The concept of an arbitrary state transition function as implemented by the Ethereum protocol provides for a platform with unique potential, rather than being a closed-ended, single-purpose protocol intended for a specific array of applications in data storage, gambling, or finance. Ethereum is open-ended by design and we believe that it is extremely well-suited to serving as a foundational layer for a very large number of both financial and non-financial protocols in the years to come. Thank you for listening to that episode on the Ethereum white paper. Please comment, and I would highly recommend to check out the original white paper. You can view the PDF document by Vitalik Buterin. Ethereum, a next-generation smart contract and decentralized application platform published in 2014. The link to this PDF will be in the description below. Please leave any comments or suggestions in the um, about us section, the Q&A section below.